You know, we've heard a lot of news uh, lately about the goings-on, the protests uh, in Hong Kong in the last few months. It turns out that there's actually been a lot uh, of these kinds of events in the former British provincial sitting. Uh, Back in 2014, uh, protesters had turned out to demonstrate against some decisions that had been made by the Chinese government that the students who participated in the protests um, assumed were unnecessarily messing with their electoral process. Uh, Apparently, in their view, the passage of some certain new regulations were tantamount to the Communist Party, like pre-screening some of their elected officials. And so what followed were were two months of protests that went on throughout the city. But what caught my eye as I was researching this was a banner that had been hung, a photograph of a banner that had been hung over uh, an interstate interpass that went right through the center of town. Big orange banner that said simply, do you hear the people sing? The reference, of course, is from that uh, epic song from the Broadway production of Les Mis. Uh, And of course, if you've never seen that production, shame on you. Um, But if you have, you'll know that that song is is one of the grandest texts in the whole show. Do you hear the people sing, singing the songs of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? Then join in the fight that will give you the right to be free. You know, it actually comes as a surprise to most historians when they look back at the great uh, sort of periods of social unrest in history, that oftentimes one of the catalysts for those movements are the songs that got sung. You know, that is when change sort of is afoot, people, people will dig into their imaginations and they'll set music to their protests. Uh, and something sort of comes alive inside of us and gets contagious whenever that happens. Uh, you know, for instance, think about the, um, the French Revolution that happened in the late 1700s when La Marseillaise was penned as European powers were closing in on France. They wrote this song. Do you hear in the countryside the roar of those savage soldiers? They come right into our arms to cut the throats of our sons, our comrades. To arms, citizens, from your battalions, let us march, let us march. You know, and even in our own day, I mean, How much traction would the civil rights movement have actually gotten without the song, We Shall Overcome? Uh, How much would equal rights for women have made it onto the radar screen of most people in America without Aretha Franklin spelling out exactly what she wants from her male counterparts, R-E-S-P-E-C-T? Would anti-Vietnam protests have had the fuel that they had without Creed's Clearwater Revivals, The uh, Fortunate Son, or Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind? Would we have known about the plight of the working poor in our inner cities in the 1970s without Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? I could go through each decade, by the way, but not going to. <laughs> but look, I mention all that simply because people burst into song when something cataclysmic breaks in on their life. That's the rule. It's almost embedded within our natures to put music to something when our hearts are burning about it. Last week, we talked about the power of music. And this week, we get to the very first Christmas song that was ever penned. And it comes to us from a poor, unwed mother who has just gotten some pretty startling news about the baby she's about to have. 
An angel comes and gives her the news at the time, uh, at, uh, by, the, by the time of our passage, it's been confirmed by her relative Elizabeth that the child she is to bear is to be the son of God. Think about how that must have rested on the mind and the heart of a young teenager. I mean, she's probably already under suspicion for being unwed and pregnant, pregnant, but she's received this divine instruction about the baby's origin and destiny. She's had this miraculous experience with Elizabeth's baby who bears witness to her child. Amazing. And so what happens is the only thing that you can do in the face of news like that, and that is to start to sing. That's what happens. So broadly, I want you to see that this is kind of what happens to anyone when these kinds of events enter their lives. But narrowly, I want to ask the question, exactly what it is that caused this? Bible students call Mary's uh, song here, the Magnificat, after the uh, Latin translation of the Bible of that first word in verse 46, Oh, magnify. So what is Mary trying to stress here? I think it's three things. She sings a song about God, a song about revolution, and a song about mercy. So let's start, first of all, it's a song about God. I mean, the first thing that you notice as you read through this passage is that the topic of the song is unequivocally God. Mary is just overtaken by the thought of how God is her Savior. Verse 49, she celebrates his might and strength towards her. In verse 53, she sings about his provision to the poor. And finally, in verse 54 and 55, she expresses her gratitude for him, for uh, the promises that he's kept to his people. And honestly, that'd be a great sermon to preach on any one of those attributes. But what I want to focus on is is how, how the sum effect of these attributes as they swim through her imagination is to make her, quote, soul to magnify the Lord. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? Well, literally, it means to do what a magnifying glass does, which is to make things larger. And of course, no one actually makes God larger than he is, but we do in our imagination sort of apprehend him more greatly so that he enlarges in our lives. Take a negative example, for, 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 for instance. Like, let's imagine that you sat down to dinner one evening and you inform your spouse, hey, look, I was just in our bedroom, uh, and I noticed on one of the outer walls of our rooms a large crack that's forming from the ceiling to the floor. I'm afraid we have foundation problems in this house. To which your spouse, as they sort of take another full of food into their mouth, looks at you and says, okay, I'll get right on that. You would be right as a spouse to say to yourself, I don't know if you are appropriately apprehending (laughs) the magnanimity of the news that I just delivered to you. Foundation problems in a house, as some of you probably know, are giant problems that require all of your attention when you discover them. Well, look, reverse the image into a positive one. There is news that you can receive that is so profound that by definition, it has to command all of your resources, all of your imagination, all of your time, all of your money, everything that you have. And this is what Mary has discovered. And she's discovered it in God. Look, in a very real sense, I think there's almost a way in which we can measure the Christian life and quantify it by the bigness of God in your own imagination. I'm in such a great problem wrestling with the smallness of God. When I was in in college, by far, I've said this before, the book that had the greatest impact on me was J.I. Packer's Knowing God. 
There's a handful of quotes in there that I really love and still actually remember and hang on to. But generally speaking, I think the reason why that book impacted me the way that it did is because there was something about sort of the great thought of God that you immerse yourself in for a while that just has a way of centering you in a way that really no other topic can. And so I wonder this morning, like, how many of our own spiritual ailments that we're wrestling with are due in some degree to a magnification problem? <laughs> God is small. He, he becomes inconsequential. He becomes tangential. But of course, it takes good news to bring him back in. There's, there's one thing to sort of guilt people into the largeness of God, but it's his grace that brings us back in to magnify him, which, by the way, is the way we increase our faith, <laughs> Faith is not increased by focusing on faith, but by moving the glass to amplify my thoughts about God. Which, by the way, is a great way to look at what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. I'm trying to sort of create application for what we do here. Because congregational worship is really just that opportunity to intensify the magnification that doesn't occur when we're by ourselves. It's different here. Think about it on a tragic level. A mob can descend into much deeper levels of cruelty than individuals typically will if they were by themselves. In the same way, appreciation and enjoyment, let's say, of a group of music lovers, doesn't it heighten as they come together to go to a concert? It's a little bit different than sitting in your car. Commentator Kent Hughes says, Corporate worship is intended to provide a context where holy passion is joyously elevated and God's word comes to hearts with unique power. It's different here, he says, because we came to it together, because God manifests himself here. Reformer Martin Luther spoke about this when he confided, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. It's really kind of a strange fact of our gathering here that the more we see him, the more we grow together. As we fill up our thoughts about him. That's what's happening to Mary here. So the first thing is her song, the Magnificat, is a song about God. But secondly, it's a song about revolution. I mean, what is it, what is it about the news of her unborn son that's got, to, to, got her to discover these topics? Well, look at what she's fixated on. God's strong power overthrowing the power structures of the world and how he demolishes the mighty and exalts the humble. That's the topic. And I really find it very interesting that there's some powerful similarities. This was a fascinating thing to discover. Between Mary's prayer and song that she sings here and a song in the Old Testament from 1 Samuel chapter 2 and a woman named Hannah. There in that passage, Hannah talks about the, the bows of the mighty being broken and that the Lord raises up the poor from the dust, lifting the needy from the ash heap. Do you hear the common themes between Hannah and Mary? I think it's clear that Mary probably had Hannah's song in her mind as she recites her own verse. By the way, as an aside, I think that's very interesting. Mary has come to identify with an Old Testament character so much that it's very natural for, for their insights to flow out of her as she comes through similar circumstances. Uh, you know, that's kind of a powerful role that the Bible stories play for us in the life of Christians because when you get especially, and especially like places like the Psalms, you hear about believing people's inner architecture. And the more you kind of absorb yourself in their world, the more you see your life in theirs. That also is another sort of view of faith as we associate with these characters, whether for good or for bad. 
But how can we summarize what these themes are that Mary and Hannah are singing? Well, to summarize this, one commentator put it this way. Mary and Hannah both share a dream. Listen to this. That dream was an ancient dream that every self-aware Jewish person had. That one day all that the prophets have said would finally come true. One day Israel's God would do what he had said to Israel's earliest ancestors, which is to bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham's family. But see, in order for that to happen, the powers that were presently keeping the world in slavery, they had to be toppled, had to come down. These were poor, hungry, enslaved, and miserable people that Mary was associating herself with. And so God would have to win a victory over the bullies, over the power brokers, over the forces of evil, which people like Mary and Elizabeth, and Hannah for that matter, knew all too well. So Mary, like so many of the Jews of her time, searched the scriptures. She soaked herself in the Psalms and the prophets. And while she was there, she found passages which spoke of mercy and of hope. Fulfillment, reversal, revolution, victory over evil, and God coming to rescue people at last. Look, in a word, what Mary and Elizabeth and and Hannah were all longing for was a revolution. That's what they were looking for. So it brings me to sort of a great misunderstanding a lot of people have when they read the lyrics to her song. Because what pours out of Mary, you've got to realize, is kind of dangerous language. Look at verse 52. She says that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Well, you know, that's kind of a dangerous thing to say when the mighty are still in charge. Like you're going to get yourself in trouble by saying things like that. And I realize this is actually a profound point that is rarely really understood by Western American Christians. Because God's work of salvation in the world is one of total renewal. In other words, it's not only that he's going to come to deal with the hearts and the souls of the people who hear this gospel, but it's also going to deal with the passing of time, the sowing of the seeds of transformation in all of life, not just in the personal and the spiritual, but also in the societal and the cultural as well. In the last days of British rule in India, uh, there was a Christian missionary there who was regularly spied upon uh, by the Indian government because they thought that he was, the missionary, was in league with the Indian nationalists. So much so that the Archbishop William Temple warned the missionary never to include the Magnificat in any of his printed materials. Why? Because he said, quote, it is a most revolutionary canticle. Hmm. Look, there are reports of missionary efforts around the world that say so much of the same thing. There are places where the Bible is used to justify participation in political liberation movements. There are actually places in the world where reading the Bible can get you into serious trouble because of the way that it's viewed in the eyes of the power brokers of that country. And I realize that whenever we talk this way, it oftentimes gets very upsetting for Christians who, let's be honest, live in nations that experience a relative amount of ease, you know, socially speaking. Christians who live in an affluent, kind of tolerant society, they often get really protectionistic, not wanting their Christianity to bleed over into social questions. And these folks are tempted, therefore, to kind of spiritualize the Magnificat and say, well, you know, Mary's just using colorful language to describe a a spiritual battle that's going on inside of her that the Lord is fighting. 
But here's the deal. The second that you talk that way, Western Christians rarely realize just how much their brothers in Christ in third world countries are offended. Why? Because they're convinced that there really is no answer to their problems without the overthrow of the social systems that are oppressing them. For them, the renewed promise of the Magnificat will really actually involve the downfall of oppressive people at the hands of whom they're presently suffering. Okay, so here we are again. (laughs) Which is it? Is the Bible a document of political revolution? A manifesto of the, uh, of the, of the Jewish Jesus sect, right? Uh, that's sort of unleashed on a, on a struggling, uh, uh, underpaid proletariat. Or is it rather a document that deals exclusively with the hearts and minds of her followers, giving them personal confidence of a safe passage into a blissful heaven when they die? Which is it? Well, it turns out that the answer to that question is a little more complicated than that, because I want you to see that that contrast I just made just now fails when you suddenly realize that ideas have consequences. People, the way people think about the world, especially themselves and what human nature is all about, it will impact the way that you deal with your world. Uh, Kurt and I had a, a systematics professor in seminary who wrote a little book Uh, obscure little book called The Emergence of Liberty in the Modern World. And in that book, he argued that when the Reformation really took root in Western Europe, that it created the very categories of mind for what we now know as societal freedom. Things like individual rights, life, liberty, checks and balances, and all of that. It extended, my professor argued, from a change in the way people thought about themselves. What was that specifically? Well, specifically as it related to the doctrine of total depravity that we confessed actually in our confession this morning. You see, total depravity states that sin has so negatively affected us humans, all humans, (laughs) that there's nothing that they can do to work their way out of their own spiritual state. That's the doctrine. We are totally depraved in that regard. But you see what happens? That when people who start to believe that And then suddenly a power-playing politician says, well, you're going to have to live in suffering because you're from a different class than I am. Someone thinks to himself, no, you're not a different class from me at all. (laughs) You know, this is injustice. I'm not going to suffer this. Or, Or when a dictator sort of rises up and says things like, no one can question my inscrutable will. I'm the one in charge here. Christians rose up and were like, No. As a matter of fact, we're going to set up a system of of checks and balances for you. Because not only do we not trust you, we don't trust ourselves. Our beliefs, in that sense, have to sort of shape the way we behave. Truth, Truth cannot exist just in our minds. It's got to come out and shape our opinions and our attitudes and ultimately our decisions. There's no such thing as disembodied truth. Look, so when Mary bursts into song, what she's doing is, is she's singing about a long-anticipated freedom for her people. Well, I mean, which is she talking about? Is she talking about a spiritual freedom, or is she talking about literal social freedom from an oppressive Roman government? Answer, both. It has to be, because human beings are not just walking ideas, (laughs) Rather, we are people who live by actions, actions which extend from this mechanism inside of us called the heart. 
And the only way that we deal with the effects of oppression is by starting there. It's the genius of Christianity. And so the great Christian that's, great question that's hanging over every Christian is do the beliefs that I claim to stand upon line up with the actions that occupy my daily life? That's a fair question. Back to J.I. Packer, my favorite quotes in another book, Not Knowing God. He said, actions that imply different doctrines cannot be tolerated. Actions that imply different doctrines. In other words, Jesus' message here is a revolutionary message. And so is Mary's. So Mary's song is a song about God. It's a song about revolution. Thirdly and finally, it's a song about mercy. Because I read your faces as accurately as I think I am at this moment. You're thinking to yourself, this doesn't sound right. Is he about to break out into a political speech? What's happening here? But what I want to make sure that we're clear on is this fact that there is a dramatic difference between the political movements that get launched in the world and what Mary is talking about here. And you can see it in how she talks in verses like verse 54. Look at it there. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now look, first of all, look at the tense of those verbs. The Savior's not even born yet. But Mary's song declares that salvation has already come. It says there, he has helped his servant Israel. Look, and here we come to the heart of it, because Mary understands that the old order of living, with all of its longing and expectation, it has already indeed been overturned. Already. And do you know how she knows that? She knows it because who God has picked to bring his Savior to. She knows herself. He has passed over the proud and the mighty and the rich and lighted his favor upon a single, upon, a, upon an unwed mother who's gotten pregnant and is completely, is completely poverty stricken. That is how she knows. She's like, if this news is coming to me, He's turned everything up. Nothing will be the same after this. In other words, the difference between the political revolutions of the world and the revolution that Mary is talking about are only seen when you examine the difference between power and mercy. Look, go back to that text of the uh, song we quoted before from the French Revolution, uh, La Marseillaise, penned in 1792, right? And eventually, this eventually became the French national anthem. anthem. Listen to a few translated lines. Let us go, children of the fatherland, our day of glory has arrived. Against us the bloody flag of tyranny is raised, the bloody flag is raised. That their impure blood should water our fields, sacred love of the fatherland, guide and support our vengeful arms. Liberty, beloved liberty, fight with your defenders under our flag so that victory will rush to your manly strains, that your dying enemies should see your triumph and glory. Do you hear the contrast between that tone and the tone of Mary's Magnificat? Look, the French protest song is full of blood and savagery and, and, and cutthroats and dying enemies. But Mary's song is full of thoughts of her God and of the joy of his mercy. Now you can see the difference between worldly revolutions and Christian revolutions. Worldly revolutions use weapons of force and power. The goal in that worldly revolution is to bend people to your will. And so the people lust after power and influence so when we can finally be in charge. 
We talk about winning all the time. We cast it in terms of a, of a culture war. But a Christian revolution, <laughs> it trains its eyes on the weak and on the poor. The emphasis comes on the small, not the great. There's, there's no expectation to go out and to conquer. The only expectation that Mary has is to go and to die just like her Savior did. That's what she sees. But here's the irony. <laughs> the great Christian irony is that this is what brings down kingdoms and has been doing so for at least 2,000 years. What displaces tyranny, what erodes the foundations of despotic regimes that keep people suffering is the mercy of God. And honestly, we don't notice it here in America because the reverse is happening here. But investigate what's happening right now in northern India or in China, in some of the poor, suffering parts of the world. And there you'll find that the seeds of revolution have already been sown. And you know what? They're blooming. They're blooming. And it's not because they got their man elected. It's because the gospel has taken over people's hearts. In other words, the revolutionary quality of Mary's song doesn't differ from worldly revolutions in its object. It differs in its means. That's the difference. One comes by grasping at what J.R. Tolkien would call the ring of power. And Tolkien kept saying, you don't hang on to the ring of power without it affecting you. Nobody does that. That is not the way. You know, people who are going to become entranced, even well-meaning Christians who are trying to win America back for God. No, the revolution that Mary's singing about comes by the mighty hand of providence that is executed through the followers of Jesus who gladly went to their deaths in the same way that Christ did. And instead of the kinds of songs that talk about blood and death and snowflakes and libtards or, or, or OK Boomer or uh, Millennials, Christians have sang songs like, Lead on, O King Eternal. Remember that song? Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Look, y'all, <clears throat> Christmas is a time for revolution a revolution that begins in every single individual heart by overthrowing the tyranny that sin has exercised against you and kept you suffering. But don't be fooled. It ends in the transformation of Oxford, Mississippi into a city that is set on a hill to show the state of Mississippi what it means to value grace and mercy and justice and righteousness. Why did you move here? It's because, you know, I just loved it here in college. Oh, to get back to Oxford. Really? Is that it? Was it because of the great educational system that we have in our public schools? Maybe. Because what Mary's song teaches us this morning, that a Christian makes moves to a place. And once they land, they start looking around. And they start saying, how does God want to transform this? What is it that's happening in me that eventually is going to come out? And don't be fooled. It will involve death, our own. 
But as it does, the seeds of that overturn the places where suffering and oppression and injustice reign. Even in our own city, in our county, in our state, in our country, and in our world. (laughs) And leading us through it all will be our songs. That's what I want you to hear. Songs about God and songs about freedom and songs about the release of captives. Songs that the world will pay not a bit of attention to. Almost certainly. So I'll end with this one question to you (laughs) that I want you to walk away with. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Is there a world beyond the barricade that you long to see? Who knows if Christmas could be something like that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us um, an appropriate energy because we know the ring of power hangs out in front of us all the time. The great temptation, Father, of our generation is to grasp at, at, at your kingdom by means that you did not condone that are the devil's means of wanting to overpower and to crush. But rather, Father, you have come and given us the ultimate example of coming and dying. And so we pray that this Christmas you would renew our zeal as we look at this song to bring about a revolution. Begin it in our hearts, Father, but let it see out into the world. We may never see it. It may be nothing that we ever get a chance to view because we may go on to go to our next mission with you on the other side of our lives. But Father, that doesn't mean we pray for it any less. We ask that you would give us Mary's vision this morning in Jesus' name.